0: Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Understand that stroke mimics can look an
1: awful lot like a stroke. Do We really want to say that CT scanning is now the standard of care for ruling out a neck fracture in somebody who is anything but low risk. And This person obviously had some nasty
2: outcome,
3: a 30 million dollar nasty outcome.
2: I think that's good medicine to do it and I also think it's good risk management to do it. This is somebody who, if we don't get this one, they ain't walking so well
3: again. That's not right. That's unethical. It's immoral to do that. I don't think that's right. I mean, who would do that? That's really unusual. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's
0: unbelievable.
3: It's unbelievable. Hello, welcome. Rick Bucadaq.
0: Greg Hanbrick. And Mel Hennett. And where are we? We are in the Hilton Hotel here in Chicago. At one time, the largest hotel in the world. Really? Really? It opened well, it's,
3: 1927. It's quite old, actually. Really? It is quite old. Yes. We're Good here at trivia. the ASAP meeting, and we're taking this opportunity to get together, since Greg lives down the street down in Ann Arbor, right, to do our issue. we got a couple interesting things uh, lined up for you. But first, we want to do some of the basic stuff. Greg, did you see this article in the Annals in August? It was about TPA and stroke. Ooh, we all read it, with great, it. Enthusiasm. <laughs> with great enthusiasm. This was enthusiasm. done by Brian Liang and Justin Zivin. Zivin? You say Zivin, I say Zivin? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talk about overachievers. Brian Liang has got an MD, a PhD, and a JD.
1: <laughs> Get a look of
3: him. Doc- so he's doctor, doctor, doctor. <laughs> and Dr. Zivin, he only has a PhD and an MD. Oh. You know, what an a underachiever, slacker. You know, a kind of slacker. Yeah, that's right. What these guys did is they went to seven legal databases looking for TPA-related lawsuits in the setting of stroke, and they're looking for the clinical circumstances of the litigation, the causes of action against providers, the basis of the liability, and the presence of EP consultations with neurologists. And they went through, 290,000 cases are in this database, and they found 33 cases that looked at exactly what they were talking about 33 cases were involved TPA and in 29 patient injury was claimed to be the result of failure to give TPA treatment so there's lesson number 1 right. but it appears that it's actually more complicated than that so the 29 of the 33 cases you didn't give it You didn't give it.
1: Now, that's interesting because I've heard other people who are very famous say it's about 50-50 in their experience. Like some of these lads and lasses who are doing a lot of these TPA cases say in their experience, 50-50. This says, no, it's mostly you didn't... Give it. The problem with anyone quoting what their caseload is, is
0: it's influenced by what side on the issue they've come down on before. I personally have a lot of these cases, but I have nothing that looks like having a database of 290,000 cases to go through. None of us have that kind of experience, but... Whenever you're looking at legal cases, just understand, not everybody files into
3: this 290,000-person database. That's one of the key points that they make. This is voluntarily added in, or they can, yes, if it's a court settlement, it gets put in. But settlements that are done outside of court, the lawyers involved can submit their cases to these databases. They can submit, That's key. but that is absolutely key because no
0: lawyer wants to submit a case where he's done a fairly low level of settlement and that sort of thing. By the way, spend some time while you're here on the floor of the displays and look at there's at least three groups who have booths over there that are pushing TPA and I think that we have to realize that this has outstripped what the data really says And I think that
3: this has become almost a caricature of science. So 29 cases claim was failure to initiate. But one of the interesting things was it wasn't about philosophical issues. You didn't offer it to me or those kinds of things. It was you failed to make the diagnosis or you did not make the diagnosis in a timely manner, precluding my client from getting this miracle therapy. I think what we should remember is in the
0: 33 cases, 21 were decided in favor of the defendants, in favor of the doctors. Now if we take those cases that are remaining, that's what we're talking about now. Those that were decided in favor of the plaintiff, of the family bringing the action, those tended to predominate all of these problems with delay 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 and they're not saying that they necessarily would have gotten tpa what they're saying is you took away the possibility or chance that we might have received
3: tpa right so that was 12 cases and 10 of them involved failure to treat but look at the two other cases two claimed injury from tpa and the highest settlement was $30 million. And who got the $30 million settlement? It was a person who got TPA who should not have gotten it. It was the stroke mimic guys. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Understand that stroke mimics
0: can look an awful lot like a stroke. There's no question that hypoglycemia can present as a focal finding. There's no question that migraine.
1: Present. Yeah, we're, we're going to go through a little list it. of
3: those. This reminds of folks. We need to do
1: that. So yeah. can I just summarise that again? You got that this your big job? database. That's my job. You got two hundred ninety thousand and these legal cases from lots of different places closed. Not seven databases. They found thirty three cases that involved TPA. Of those, twenty nine for failure to give Oops. in some form. Yes. And that means that for other reasons. But the single biggest one was you gave it when you shouldn't have. And this person obviously had some
3: nasty outcome—a thirty million dollar nasty outcome. These
1: were all big cases. The average here, the range here, is sort of between two and five million for most of them.
3: Yeah, exactly. The lowest one was around a hundred thousand, but they note that these claims started in like nineteen ninety nine, and as you may anticipate, as years goes by, there's more and more of these cases, and it takes, I guess, for a long time for them to kind of run through the courts, et cetera. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and the real problem is now with numbers being thrown around on television for bailouts of. $800 that sort of thing. What's a million here or
3: there? It's nothing. It's chump change. So the conclusion of this study, I think, is a little misleading in terms of I would have intuited that the doctor failed to give the stuff because he didn't want to give it. He was philosophically against it. He didn't really give the person informed consent about the pros and cons. That really wasn't the issue. It was you didn't realize the clock was running and you didn't move. And people thought your behavior, therefore, was culpable in terms of precluding this opportunity.
1: Now, it could be, and I wouldn't suggest this, but it could be that these delays were exactly because they didn't believe this stuff was useful, they thought it could hurt them, and that's exactly why they're a little slower than they normally would be. You mean dragging your feet? Dragging your feet, Drag-ing so your you're feet. like, oh, I'm outside the window now. We did another
3: issue of risk management run three, where we focused on the issues of consent, particularly in regard to thrombolytic therapy, and I don't think we need to beat that up. But certainly, no. you need to make a fair effort on your part to display the good things and bad things that may come from this therapy. By the way, the big problem with the mimic, Rick, is that what are we looking for on the initial CT?
0: We come in, they've got a focal finding, and we're looking for the CT to be negative. So, after all, if the CT is positive, we're not going to be giving TPA. So now, you've rushed in, you've done a CT, they've got something focal, and now you've got a negative CT to say, well, listen, it's a possibility there could be a stroke going on. We have this narrow window of time. We're going to give a
3: medicine. Yeah, you qualify for thrombolytic therapy. <laughs> you $30 million qualify because the CT is normal. And so there is a list. We should probably just restate it certainly hypoglycemia and people say well no hypoglycemia doesn't have focal neurologic deficits I beg to differ with you there's been clear-cut cases where focal neurologic deficits have occurred in the setting of hypoglycemia and that's in diabetics they also point out that alcoholics could be hypoglycemic and not declare themselves as they're not diabetics they just don't have any liver to store their glycogen mass lesions they pointed out usually mass lesions have the slow progressive kind of thing more and more headaches but look at Ted Kennedy Tent you had a seizure as the first manifestation, as far as we know, of a brain tumor, kind of thing. So mass lesions are not necessarily always slow growing. And if you combine it think.
0: with TPA, now you've got a weapon of mass destruction. destruction.
3: <laughs> yes. Seizures and postictal states, check for bite marks, see if they've peed in their pants, look for the routine kinds of things. Todd's paralysis. Todd's paralysis is a focal neurologic deficit after a, a grand mal seizure. You didn't see the grand mal seizure, but now you see the Todd's paralysis, not moving that arm very well, kind of thing. Generally seen in association with focal seizures, but can occur in association with generalized seizures as well. So you certainly have to kind of at least put down in your chart. I felt between the guy's legs, no incontinence. I looked in the mouth, no bleeding. Those kinds of things. At least to allow people to make the point that you looked migraine. How many please you? Migraine. Now, Absolutely. I must admit, I've never seen a hemiplegic migraine, and I'd be scared to death to make that <laughs> diagnosis. No, I've certainly seen hemiplegic
0: migraine. I've seen hemianesthetic, hemiparetic, migrainous people. But fortunately, God, I hope this always happens. They'll come in and say, "I've had this in the past with right. one of my migraine headaches."
3: Other thing you have to remember, though, is migraines can
0: precipitate strokes. I think that data is a little more tenuous, Rick. I honestly do. And you know what? If they've had previous hemi-anesthetic migraine, and now they've got their headache and an arm that doesn't work very well, I'm going to be a little slow to be
3: giving them TPA. What about functional hemiparesis? Functional disorders, conversion reactions, almost by definition have to have a neurologic component. You know, I'm paralyzed, my leg won't move, those kinds of things. Now, how do you make that diagnosis? Well, they seem to be indifferent to it. There is a, a way that kind of can help you, but that's in the list as well. And Plus, they also talk about some of these encephalopathies and toxic metabolic syndromes, like hyperosmolar states where your blood's like caro <laughs> and your blood sugar's a thousand kind of thing can be associated with. So be real careful. And one of the other things that was brought up is something that I was not aware about in terms of the term called stroke chameleons. This is people who have really atypical weird strokes. Now, we don't know whether, frankly, TPA would really work with atypical weird strokes. And they talk about things where there's usually a deficit associated with the stroke. Well, they're talking about things where you have overactivity. Your arm starts flailing about, right? and weird stuff like that.
0: Nobody in the initial NINDS trial was left in who had those kind of symptoms or findings. We don't know what that means. In fact, they also excluded some of the posterior fossa stuff. So it was a selected group, principally anterior circulation patients that were in the NINDS trial. So they really have no data
3: to defend one way or the other whether it would be of any use. One of the things I would like to apologize for is in the past, we've gotten a little fast and loose with citations, and recently there was a physician, I think his name was John Rogers, asked us for a specific citation because we'd made some reference to a paper in the American Journal of Medicine, and we looked and we just could not find that thing. So, my promise to you is that we will be more careful on our citations. This paper by Dr. Liang and Zivin was in the August issue of the Annals of Emergency Medicine.
1: Can I summarize it then? Because this is important. So, somebody comes in, I think they've got a stroke... The first thing I should do is get a good history when did it start I don't if they're outside the time frame they're outside the time frame but then I should get busy and what I'm trying to say is it is not a defense for me to go slow because I don't believe in it I need to go fast, do what I normally would do, and then get into the consent issues. I need to think about the mimics. And you said hypoglycemia. Well, I know how to fix that. I'll look, and I'll remember to look. Mass lesions. We'll look closely on the CT. We'll rule that out. Seizures, postictal. We'll look for the lateral tongue biting, the wee-wee, get some more history. (laughs) Migraine. That one could really bite me in the buttocks if they haven't had it before. There is no way, because they're going to be... They have a headache. Their CT is going to be negative. They're hemiplegic. They are a candidate for TPA. And it's going to hurt them, or it's certainly not going to help them. And if you get three of these patients who have this,
0: you give them all TPA and they get better, now you've got a series to publish. <laughs> Just think about go. it that
3: way. Yes. Yeah, you're not going to be unlucky enough to have the hemiplegic migraine the first time. Somebody else is going to be working that day. Yeah, let's you know? hope. God, I, okay. It's not going to be you. <laughs> yeah, God protect me from that. Functional
1: yeah. hemiparesis, okay, there. are Encephalopathies, usually there's something else going on there. And then the strokes that are atypical, and Greg's telling me that the strokes that are atypical were excluded from the initial NINDS trial. That makes me feel better. We don't know if this stuff is going to work in that group. All right, I got it.
3: Okay, we also got something from my friend Otto Rogers. Otto is in, I think, Pinehurst. Yeah, Pinehurst. In any case, Otto sent me a copy of a newsletter sent to him by Mag Mutual Insurance Company. He viewed it as very distressing. It cited a case where an intoxic Why is everybody intoxicated? An intoxicated <laughs> male was involved in a motor vehicle Excuse accident. Excuse me. In two hours, we're, we're going to be into intoxicated. Go ahead. A cross-table lateral of the C-spine was taken, and it was the custom at that place that if the x-ray was read by the radiologist normally, they'd take the rest of the film, and they did that. And because this person was moving around here and there, the radiologist, in their inimitable fashion, wrote, and probably true, limited examination because of patient's inability to cooperate with positioning and holding still. No obvious fracture or dislocation is seen." That was the reading of the plain films. The patient is admitted to the hospital, a neurologic examination in the emergency department, and by the admitting hospitalist finds no neurologic deficits. Later that evening, the patient complains to the nurse, I'm feeling some numbness and tingling in my arms and legs, which is not reported to anybody. And in the following morning, the patient has obvious gross dysfunction neurologically and a CT is performed. That CT notes a substantial subluxation of C5 on C6 in association with facet fractures. And despite surgery, the patient remains a quadriplegic. The lawsuit alleges that the radiologist failed to order and obtain a CT at the time he rendered his initial reading. The plaintiff's expert alleged that the standard regarding CT imaging has changed over recent years. Oh, here we go now. This is where we're getting it. And it's moving from plane films to helical CTs because it is common knowledge in the radiology community and to those who are EMA subscribers <laughs> that many CTs, will show factors that are not seen on plain x-rays. So, okay, that's known, but here comes the rub here. The American College of Radiology is now starting to make formal statements and recommendations with regards to the use of these imaging modalities. That's where it gets a little bit interesting because these can be used against it. So the case was obviously settled for a large amount of money. They didn't even... Think of taking it to a jury because it was such a slam dunk. In the discussion section of this newsletter, the authors note that plain films have been shown to detect less than half of C-spine fractures compared with CTs. But it is also asserted that clinically significant X-ray fractures are generally picked up by plane films. So there's a little hedging going on there. Some authorities are asserting that CT should be a screening modality of choice in high and moderate risk patients. The reason I say that is because we're we're leading you down a pathway that comes to some conclusions that you aren't gonna want to make. The American College of Radiology in October of two thousand and seven in a publication noted in some institutions, CT has replaced radiography in the initial assessment of patients at high risk for C spine fractures. Nobody's gonna argue with that. Okay. But it's
0: how you define high risk, medium risk. Low risk. Well, that's the next but, point. Well, there's a lot of people who would say low risk patients don't need any radiologic study. Well, you're at jumping all.
3: ahead there, I understand it. Because the American College of Radiology has appropriateness criteria that they published in 2008. And those appropriateness criteria noted the pooled sensitivity of radiography for detecting patients with cervical spine injuries is 52%, while the combined sensitivity with CT is 98%. Wow. Picks up half the fractures. Radiology, plain films, is reserved for evaluating patients where suspicion for cervical spine injury is low. Exactly what you said, Greg. But then they say thin section CT and not radiography is the primary screening mode for suspected cervical spine injuries. Let's go one more step. Adult patients who satisfy any of several low-risk criteria for cervical spine injuries that have been established in large, multi-institutional studies, what they mean is Nexus or Ian Steele's Canadian, mm-hmm. right. Large, multi-institutional, they said that determines who a low-risk patient is. Patients who do not fall in this category should undergo a thin-section CT. So they're basically saying, if you think a person is at moderate or high risk for a cervical spine, you should get a CT. You should not get a plain x-ray. But let's take the patient
0: population, Rick. If we look at everybody who comes into the department who is thrust up on a board, has a collar put on them, by the EMTs are taught to put everybody, everybody on the board. These are the people who we say, does your neck hurt? And they say, not till they stuck me on this board. And then we feel that neck. It's non-tender. They don't have a complaint. Their neurologic exam is normal. You know what? You're going to have to shoot a lot of films for a long time. I think those people are clearly low risk and need no study. And that's really what Nexus tells us.
3: Well, there's going to be some people who flunk Nexus, but really are not at high risk. Exactly. So there's going to be some people who flunk Nexus or flunk the steel rules. And yet you still believe, I think the risk is really pretty low here the mechanism of injury was such. Yes, he's a little intoxicated, but he's not hugely intoxicated. So those people may be the ones who qualify, but it's going to be a relatively small group of people, don't you think? Well, let's
0: talk first about if we're going to use a modality and it sounds like for some reason, we're being hesitant to use the CT and there's no one cheaper in this room than me. I think cheap is beautiful. If you actually look at the cost, not the charge, But the cost of doing a helical CT, it's less tech time, it's less everything except for one thing, RADs. This is a radiation question. If you're 72 years old, light grandma up. First of all, the chances she's going to live long enough to develop some tumor based on this is very small. Funny, we have this hesitancy when we're talking about giving RADs to the neck. How come we don't have more of this discussion when we're talking about giving 450 times the radiation of a chest x-ray to
3: a child's abdomen? I mean, let's get serious here. Well, these authors basically say to this newsletter that there is an indication that a new standard may be evolving. And my friend Otto basically says, I got problems because what am I supposed to do? And I don't know that, fortunately, they say there's no case law that is going to kinda come in here and differentiate this. This is clearly not there yet. One final question in this was, what is the obligation of the radiologist after he makes a statement that this film is technically inadequate but I don't really see anything on what's there? One of the contentions was, that radiologist should have recommended a CT. One of the counters were, by the radiologist, obviously, was, no, that's the job of the emergency physician to order the study that is appropriate. If I read a study that is inadequate, that doctor needs to order the next study.
1: I agree with that. I think that's a bogus defense to say, if they read it out as inadequate, then I think it's totally up to the emergency physician to say, look, I re-examine them, they really don't have it. Or I am concerned that I got another test. I think there should be some effort on the radiologist to make the note that it's inadequate that's the most important thing. What you do with that information, I think, is totally up to the immune physician. Now, the problem is that if the immune physician read it and thought it was fine and never saw the radiology note until later. I want to go back to this CT plane film thing. This is concerning. Here's my question. Do we really want to say that CT scanning is now the standard of care for ruling out a neck fracture in somebody who is anything but low risk. So if they fail Nexus, and a lot of people do, are we going to go straight to CT now? No plain films anymore? Is that what we're saying? Well, I, I think don't think that's right. Let's go back again. The standard of
0: care in ruling out the need to do any radiographic study is a clinical one. All right. Are they awake? Are they alert? What does the exam show? I still think that probably 70% of the people who come in can be sorted out in that way. Now we're talking about the 30% who have something, right? They have something that makes either the mechanism of injury, the age of the patient, the intoxication level of the patient, or if they said to me, you know what? My neck hurts after this accident, and am I examining them? They've got tenderness in the neck. As far as I'm concerned, that gets a CT because I know this data, now they're medium risk, at least, negative neurological exam. The problem is the downside on this, Mel, is so huge. This isn't missing your ankle. This is somebody who, if we don't get this one, they ain't walking so well again. And that really is a major difference, is what kind of comfort level are we buying? When you're moving from a 50% pickup rate to a 98% pickup rate, I think you and I feel a lot better
1: with this kind of patient. But the Nexus study, biggest study ever done, 34,000 patients, when it comes to Nexus, said, yes, we miss fractures on plain films, but they don't matter. We only missed three, so the miss rate was one in 10,000. Three fractures that really matter. So I know that Jerry is not dead, but he would be rolling over in his grave to say that we should be using CT instead of plain film. They said low risk, but failed nexus. Dual plain films. Your chance of missing an injury that required neurosurgical intervention was close to zero as you can get.
3: Well, to be fair, not all C-spine fractures are going to have the potential for neurologic problems. And I don't know what the number is. I think the number is probably pretty small. It's small. You're talking about Fairly subtle fractures here, and what subset of them are going to give you neck problems? But when you have it, you've created a multimillionaire who's in a wheelchair. So I think there's so much weighing here. But on paper, we have American College of Radiology says medium or high risk at CT. Now, how they define medium or high risk. So it's all about the definition. They don't. They don't. But they say we do have a way of defining low risk, which is. Nexus and uh,
1: the steel. Canadian C-spinal. Yes, yeah, Canadian whatever they C-spun. were called, whatever they're called. They the were. Canadian, C-spun thank C-spun you very
3: much. <laughs> yeah. So, they didn't focus on the other two categories. Now, I think we kind of know who the high-risk patients are, but it's pretty clear. I think we should expand our view of this and say some of these patients certainly should be ct and not routinely getting plain film. And we no, should not
0: that. be afraid of CTing. Based on the cost, right. the That's actual true. cost, if we talk about cost instead of charge, it is cheaper from a resource utilization standpoint to get a CT than it is plain films.
1: Can the American College of Radiology set the standard of care for emergency medicine by saying something like this? Or is the standard of care still set by that jury on that day after they've heard that In flavor? most
0: states, the standard of care is set at the time of trial by the expert commenting, allowed to comment who is in the same field as the physician being sued so the plaintiff's expert almost always has to be drawn from emergency medicine if it's against an emergency physician they can't bring in a radiologist to say an emergency physician should have done this
1: or that so we should take note of that but we can say the vast majority of emergency physicians are still using plain films that's a reasonable standard of care absolutely well there's also
3: this disconnect between what is commonly done and what should be done
1: the standard care versus standard of care the
3: standard care versus the standard of care or whatever that nuancing of well the whole community is behind right. here's what the literature says and there's this gap between what is known and what is practice and that gap is many many years in certain instances and patients are harmed as a result of that gap existing and failing to narrow that gap but that is another matter mm. So I hope Dr. Rogers got something out of this. Oh, that was Otto Rogers. Yeah, the apology was to John Rogers. We've got too many Rogerses in here. How about another letter? Dale is good. Mike Algren writes about a case of a child with a mild head injury whose father got angry because of the weight and was about to leave. And despite the best efforts of the staff, the father took the child out. The father had alcohol in his breath. There's a, everybody, I don't know, what. they all know alcohol. <laughs> the issue concerns what length should be taken in this case. He specifically wants to address, does the child's chief complaint matter? Well, I think that has something to do with it. Absolutely, it does. If the child
0: was in to have removal of stitches, and the triage nurse said, well, it doesn't look infected, but you've got to wait because we've got a. Room full of people, we probably would not be very aggressive in that. If someone thought the child is hit on the head such... And vomited once. Yeah, that there's some
3: problem, absolutely the chief complaint makes some difference. Next he asks, what level of aggressiveness should be taken assuming the police won't be there immediately? My answer is, don't get anybody hurt over this, for crying out loud. Exactly. (laughs) You're not
0: empowered to tackle the father and hold him down. Don't do that. Do whatever you can to soothe him, get somebody out there, talk to the dad. Dad will get you right back. But you put yourself and the staff at risk. There might be a strapping 6'6", six, six, 25-year-old dad who could kick the crap out of everybody here. You're not empowered to do that. More than that, you've now left your staff open to potential harm. There are people in this society who are paid to deal with that kind of behavior. I'd call police. Of course, if you call hospital security, it's twenty minutes until those rickety old men have actually
3: made it down there. <laughs> Parkinson is a medicine there. You know, remember Tim Conway? Yeah, we yeah, hit him with a she with a cinnamon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you probably don't remember no. Tim Conway. You know too on the young. Carol Burnett show, and he would no. do his little shuffling walk and kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
1: that's for you Americans. So it's about picking your fight, right? If the kid has something minor, you're not going to make such a big deal of it. It's a viral syndrome; you're not worried about it. Versus, it's a kid that's clearly sick. Dad's clearly drunk. This kid's got a spleen that's ruptured. You're even worried the dad did it to them. That's when you might get oh all gosh, the docs no. together and all the nurses. And if the cops aren't <laughs> there, you might try and deal with this yourself. Let but. me expand on this particular problem for a second. I had a case where
0: I'm sewing up about 11 o'clock at night a child six seven years old who's been cut on the hand Dad's standing over me swaying and smelling of alcohol I know that he's going to be driving that child home what is my obligation to the potential third party here dad's intoxicated my patient is now going to get in his car and be driven home, I notified the police. I had them come, take Dad in the other room and talk to him. The cops have a way of dealing with people who are drunk. They know how to do this. They do this every day and merely said to Dad, give us your keys because if we see you go out and turn the car over and back out of the parking spot, we'll arrest you. Said, why don't you sit here for a couple hours, have a cup of coffee, let the nurses decide when to go home. You know what? I think that kind of behavior
3: is just common sense, Mm -hmm. isn't it? We got a note from Ralph Badnowski, my friend in Florida. Hi, Hi, Ralph. Responding (laughs) to, uh, we had made some comments about aftercare instructions, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's true in, you know, smaller ERs, but he wanted to make a couple of points regarding busy ERs and some of the benefits of these computerized aftercare instructions. He says their content is generally good. There's going to be a lot of variability between other doctors, but, you know, this has got a certain threshold. That's good. Legibility is good. That's good. Multiple disclaimers are enclosed regarding lab and x-ray reports. They include the prescribed medicine so the family doctor can knows what you did. It can be done in Spanish and English. They can be customized. Not every provider left to their own devices will give good discharge instructions and that there's an ease of indicating no gym, no school, no when follow-up should occur. And so it provides a kind of a commonality that is going to assure that you haven't fallen before. Ralph, Ralph, Ralph,
0: Ralph, Ralph, Ralph. Threshold. I can agree with most everything you've said, except at a certain point in time, you've got to cut down the amount of paper. The amount read is inversely proportional to the amount written. It's become ridiculous. The patient now walks out with six or seven sheets of paper when what we want is to know when they need to be seen, a specific time, and a specific action. You know, most of this stuff that's on these ridiculous disclaimers and things like that, I don't think they have much legal validity anyway. Number two, who do you think goes home and actually reads seven pieces of paper on a discharge? I want up front. I think everything he said about legibility is good. The Spanish language is good. All these things are good, but... Ralph, do me a favor. If you can cut down the amount of paper they walk out with, I think the computerized discharge instruction isn't bad. But some of them have tried to give too much information. Too much information is not a good thing. See, we don't want to give them everything they needed to know about a migraine headache. We want to tell them where to go,
1: what would bring them back, and when they're supposed to be reseen. That's it. So you're not saying that there's anything wrong with a cookie-cutter discharge instruction. It's just the quality of it. It's got to be short to the point. It's got to do all those things rather than writing it out yourself. Is there any, like Jim Roberts likes to say, he likes to do special discharge. I'm not going to give you this cookie cutter thing because you're my special patient. I'm looking after you in a special way. And so I circle things and I write on the discharge instructions to make it look like you're a special patient and I did special things. Is there any validity to that concept that if you do have a cookie cutter discharge, maybe you should enhance it with some... Special writing to make the patient feel there like i There are three I'm things special. you need to
0: enhance it with. Number one, the piece of paper is not the same as having the doctor go back in the room and talk to you. Because you will, in the conversation, edit things down and hit the two or three important points that they need to know. The second thing that we need to do is make sure they've actually understood, with a piece of paper in your hand like that, how do you know they can read? We're going to have 15 to 20% of our patient population comes in, have very poor reading skills. Do they actually know what some of these things mean? We actually gathered from around the country a lot of the head injury discharge instructions. I think they're totally a waste of time. It ought to say, if anything's not normal, come back. We actually had one that said on it, if the pupils are no longer symmetrical bilaterally, you should return. Who the hell knows what that means? That's just crazy crap. And then the third thing is, if a fourth grader can't look at it and follow the instructions, it's wrong. Because basically what we want to do is re-enter them into a system in a specific time frame. That's it. And all of these things that say, well, you've had an x-ray ordered. If we find the emergency physician was stupid and made a mistake reading it, we'll contact your lawyer. We'll do this. I mean, all these things get (laughs) to be crazy after a while.
3: I like the basic bucata mantra. If your symptoms persist, worsen, or new symptoms develop, you come back to this emergency department immediately. That captures everything that can possibly go wrong. Without saying, well, if you start twitching in your right eye here kind of thing, that may... I don't want to elaborate them. If it's different than what you got now, I want you back. I'm not going to make you a little doctor. I'll do that part. Just come back. We're here 24-7. But persist for how long? Well, that's just it. I didn't want to do the whole aftercare instruction Mm. thing you got a sprained ankle. Your sprained ankle should be substantially better in about 10 days to two weeks. If it isn't, you'll need to get followed up because there may be something else going on. If this throat infection is not better in a couple of days, I'd like to see you back. Because you know the time frame that these things should recover. I don't like, honestly, these doctors who take this tactic. I'm going to send every person back to their doctor to be seen no matter what's wrong. Because they don't give me the right time frame. I'm going to cover my butt by creating another visit to a doctor. Colleague, for no matter what's wrong with you, you got a cold. I want you to see your family doctor tomorrow. Bullshit, that's not right. That's unethical. It's immoral to do that. You've diagnosed a cold, it is a cold. There's no advantage of them being told to go to a doctor in the next day. that
0: well, reminds me of W.C. Fields. He said everything in the world, any good, was either illegal, immoral, or fattening. <laughs> and that's what's making it sound like. We need to give reasonable instructions, reasonable time frames, but they ought to be specific so the patient understands. It's not return sort of when you feel like it. It's in seven days. This is either good or you're back here or you're in some place. It's 10 days. Or, quite frankly, on a lot of these things, I'll bring them back burns on the weekend. I know that if I see them on Thursday, they can't get anywhere in to see anybody on Saturday or Sunday. It'd be five days till they can be seen. Just bring them back to your place.
3: There's no cost in doing that, really. Here's one from Robert Hutton, Greg. This is going to be focused on you. So they're learning to use an ultrasound machine. And at one hospital they're at, they are allowed to put down, or it's okay, or they have adopted, and the radiologists are okay with this, putting down the preliminary reading of the ultrasound by the x-ray, by the emergency physician, even acknowledging they tell the patient's, We're going to get the real test, but I'm training, I'm learning, and if it's okay with you, I'm going to do this test here. And they want them to put down their preliminary reading. At the other hospital, the radiologists are much more protective about the use of ultrasound, and they don't want them to do anything in the chart with regarding any kind of preliminary readings or not. Do you have any view of writing preliminary readings, not writing preliminary readings? I have a serious view of this. On these learner doctors? If you are
0: doing something... The idea that we're not going to record what we did, I think, is wrong. And I think it's immoral. If you did an ultrasound, this is your feeling about the ultrasound, you ought to write it down someplace. That'd be like saying... It's like the well, stethoscope, isn't like it? It's like the stethoscope. I mean, it's the, the stethoscope heart? of this century or this millennium. There's no question Doesn't about mean it. mean
3: you're good at listening at the stethoscope.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> we don't nice say... Bellicum. That'd be like the cardiologist saying, we don't want you guys to record what you heard through your stethoscope. Or the orthopods to say, you know, we don't want you recording what you picked up on your examination of the knee. This is just an exam. And to say that we can't put that down, first of all, I think it's medically legally wrong. If you did it, then own it.
3: Then take care of it. Acknowledging that you are in a training process. Exactly right. Okay. Right. Here's a great case. So a person arrests in the emergency department and they work on them like mad to try to resuscitate them, but they're not successful. But the person's rhythm is intractable V-fib. They try everything, but the person persists in V-fib. They gave the drugs, they gave the shocks, and the person's still in V-fib. And after a while, they said, okay, well, a lot of time has gone by, this person's not viable, they're in V-fib, let's call the code. 45 minutes later, they're getting ready to put this person, get them for the morgue, and the fact is, the person's breathing has vital signs that are reasonable, not so good oxygenation, and recovers with some substantial neurologic deficits. So the question here is, what do you do with a person who's got a treatable rhythm, but it is not responding, and can you call a code in those cases? Now, obviously, I think we're kind of on thin ice here, because I don't know there's a lot of precedent here, and this is called ultimate bad luck for some people. Your thoughts? I think if it's a gross fib, it's very hard to call
0: the code on that one. You better have done a lot of things. But there's a piece here that's missing. What was that person's neurological exam at the time they called the code? If this is fixed dilated pupils with a disconjugate gaze, these people are in bad shape. They ain't coming back, Rick. They may get back a heartbeat. They're not getting back a person. And at a certain point in time, there's not much you're going to do about that. I think you have to be real careful about going out to the family. It's very funny we bring this up because I've had this exact event happen to me as well. Oh, good work. Where they come in and now they're in a rhythm. Pretty much, I'm sure the patient then has to be admitted. They do die in the hospital invariably. None of these people get up and win the marathon the next week. They all have severe neurologic damage. But I think it's hard to call the code in a rhythm which we can at least theoretically
1: treat. If this is in a hypothermia case, it's rare. rare. <laughs> but you do see this in the hypothermia cases where the rhythm looks like it's you know unsurvivable. They do their thing for a while, they stop. And there's a, a famous one of a 3 rod. I think that was just recently, that yeah. went for a lot of money. And they put the kid in the morgue, and uh, the guy down the morgue goes, oh my gosh, this kid's breathing, because they'd warmed up to sort of room temperature and got a pulse. That's what the shocks do they're in fib and you put the paddles
0: on them and shock them enough you put enough left to warm them back (laughs) up exactly
1: so this is rare and yeah i I don't know what you do with this usually we're pretty good at knowing when people are dead the thing that happens much more frequently is not that they come back to life but the family comes in and you've left the monitor on and they've got that beep, beep 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 That goes on for six hours. a uh, Beating heart, we'll have some electric, non beating heart can have electrical activity forever. Turn the damn monitors off so yes, the family exactly. don't freak out. Ex- turn them off and do your
0: neurological exam. And believe me, fixed disconjugate gaze,
1: fixed pupils. These people yeah. aren't coming back. And you can do entitled CO2. It's a very good predictor. If they're total CO2 after 10 minutes is less than 10, the chance that they're coming back is close to zero. You can do a potassium if it's over 10, the chance that they're coming back is close to zero. This
0: reminds me of the movie The Princess Bride. The so they had the patient. Yes, and and he drops the hand and says, "I've seen
1: worse." You know, he's dead. He's not really dead. Yeah. <laughs> there's dead and there's mostly well, dead. Well, he did, was yeah. mostly dead. This did result
3: in a lawsuit, and I think it's very difficult to make any kind of black and white right. statements about what you ought to do here. I think that personally, I did respond. I would have a little difficulty personally calling a code in a person who I thought was having V fib i got to think I could give them enough magnesium. I'll stop that hardening before I'm real. Oh, here we gonna... <laughs> go with
0: Dr. Magnesium again. Give me a break. There's By the, the way, problem right there. I can, I can the funny them. thing is, all of these drugs have become holy water. So instead of sprinkling something on you and doing a dominus vobiscum sort of thing, what we do now is we use epinephrine and atropine. When the EMTs have done six rounds of this stuff, and there's been 15 defibrillations, the truth of the matter is they come in dead, they stay dead.
3: Well, except in this case. Exactly.
1: <laughs> this is the exception which proves, proves the, rule. the rule. Right.
3: ...knowledge base out of. And one of our guests now is Kevin Clower. Kevin is my colleague for the National Emergency Medicine Board Review, but he's also the Director of Quality and Clinical Education at Emergency Medicine Physicians in Canton, Ohio, otherwise known as EMP. Author, scholar... Leader of men, I am
0: absolutely blown away, Rick, that we've got Kevin back with us again today. We're
3: not worthy, actually. We're those, not worthy. Those of you who've been listening for a while <laughs> knew that Kevin participated with us on a tape that we did back in the winter time when the three of us were in Kauai suffering the, through a course. Yes, I remember that, that right. well. Yeah, And, and, and that, Kevin did a great job and on the that one. of that, Kevin reminded me, was thoracic aortic dissection. But Kevin is being asked now... A different question. is being asked, what has EMP done to limit its risk? I'm sure you're self-insured of sorts. Yes, we are. What policies and procedures do you have in place on the doctor's side and then on the departmental side
2: to limit your risk?
3: Understand, Kevin, you're under the lights. We're grilling you now. Give us
0: the three or four things that can save the day for emergency medicine.
2: Sounds good. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Craig. The few things we've thought about, originally what you want to look at and what we focused on are any obvious low-hanging fruit with best practices. When I did some clinical quality audits, we noticed that, for instance, there was medical decision-making where it didn't belong. The best example I can think of is when physicians were missing a topic pregnancies, you wanted to know why. And the reason was we were asking them to decide whether they should order a pregnancy test or not. With women that are in childbearing age, with vaginal bleeding or abdominal pain, why are we asking physicians to decide if they need a test that costs about $2.50? It doesn't make any sense at all. That test should be standardized. It should be ordered to triage, and we should use the DOC with more important things and making better use of their time, making better decisions on whether they should obtain some urine or not.
0: Well let me point out that all the literature on this has basically said women don't know about their menstrual periods at least a 20 percent error rate and when they actually go back and look and see who's pregnant, who's not a lot of people don't know. You're absolutely right. If anybody's sexually active between 10 and 90, we probably ought to just get the pregnancy test.
3: Well, the broader implications of what you said is, is that it implies that you have some kinds of expectations about what people will have ordered when they present with certain complaints, which may be formalized in terms of some kind of standing procedures or orders or
2: something to that effect? We do. And actually, we have some unique clinical policies in place that actually require real-time intervention. If a physician is going to deviate from an obvious high-risk entity with a specific leveraged point, such as ordering a pregnancy test in the entity that I described, they have to call one of our physicians on call to explain why they would do it. If it's reasonable, for some reason, if you can think of a reason why you wouldn't want to do it, and they agree, that's fine. It's documented in the medical record. Why this is so unique is it's one of the only real-time interventions that interrupts the error before it happens, as opposed to trying to deal with it afterwards. That's
3: really unusual.
0: No, this is a very different concept, that if you are going to vary, you're going to modulate from the expected norm, bounce it off of someone else. I think that's a very interesting concept, and it's very similar to kind of the concepts that they do in the airline industry pilots kind of do things very routinely over and over again remember there are bold pilots and old pilots but there're no old bold pilots they have to do it a certain way every time and i think that that's not a bad
3: idea give us some other examples of where this might take place let me ask one question first the implication then is that your physicians when they come on board start working for emp are given a set of guidelines regarding a variety of symptoms and that they basically have to intellectually embrace these things. And ballpark, are we talking about 5, 10, 20, 30?
2: We want no more than 10, and we think we have, I don't remember the exact number, about 6 or 7 right now. The inception of this came actually before we even started with our risk retention group. We are self-insured, and all of our docs own a piece of this, so that's how we can get buy-in with them as well. So if they follow the policies, they will have less risk, provide better patient care, and they don't run the risk of losing money from the risk retention group.
0: Let me ask you a question, Kevin. Have you ever contemplated if a physician does not follow the rules, does not call in, doesn't do what the guidelines say, that you would take the initial cash out of his pocket, out of his check, since it's your money anyway, let's say he has to pay the first, well, we'll pick a chump change number, the first $30,000 of any lawsuit. Have you thought about that?
2: We've considered it. And would we actually go that direction at this point? No. But certainly when you have your own insurance company and if a physician does not follow the expectations of whatever insurance company agreement that you have, whether it's your own or someone else's, there is an opportunity there to intervene and even not even provide insurance. So as long as we educate our physicians about that, we haven't had any difficulty with compliance on this for the most part and we've had very good success, and it has reduced our risk because I track those entities, and we know that the incidence of those high-risk entities that we were concerned about, we really have less problems with them now.
3: So you basically have five or six that you've developed over the years. Can you recall just generically their
2: headings? Sure, absolutely. The first one, actually, the whole concept started with our general counsel, Mike Frank, and I've taken over the program implementation now and monitoring. The first one we call Three Strikes. And I think you both would agree that if a patient comes back to the emergency department with the same complaint three times for an acute event and we can't get it right, you probably would be best served and so would the patient by admitting them to the hospital.
0: Well, I've actually been speaking about this for 25 years, and my feeling is to try and explain to a jury that, okay, doctor, we can forgive you the first time. All right, second time, okay. But doctor, you had three bites at the apple. You see, that's a tough sell. As far as I'm concerned, if the Pete's delivery
3: guy comes three times that night, admit him, I don't care what he's got. This guideline is not chief complaint specific. It is just the fact that it's third time back. Must be for the same
2: complaint though. Mm -hmm.
0: We should amplify on that a little bit that if you actually look at the return visit, is it a red flag or a red herring? It's a red flag. All the data says, yeah, Maybe they would misunderstood when they're supposed to come back and that sort of thing, but you know what? Take another look. In fact, there's an insurance company that I've done some work for. They say if a patient comes back for a second visit, have another doctor, if you've got one there, another doctor, take a look. You need fresh eyes at
2: that moment in time. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Well, the way we look at it, a return visit is an opportunity, not an annoyance. And we have to change the culture in emergency medicine. So many of us want to say, oh, they're back again for that migraine. No, they're back for the subarachnoid you missed the first time. Well, That's the way you need to think about we're it.
0: We're the only business that would be mad at repeat business. We're going to go out to a great restaurant tonight in Chicago, and nobody's going to say, are you hungry again? Are you back here again? Damn it, didn't you eat here in the Sears Tower like last week? We're the only business that does that. I don't know why.
2: Makes no sense. So that's one of your five or six. How about a couple of The most recent one that we implemented that I had very significant concerns about recently with a change in the literature, and I think a recent change in the standard of care, is how to deal with TIAs. We had, for whatever reason, in a short period of time, within about 6 to 12 months, several claims and a few lawsuits regarding patients that were discharged with neurologic symptoms. They were reported as probable TIAs, and the physician sent them home, and there was a resultant bad outcome later. Now, the issue isn't if they admitted into the hospital, necessarily something could have been done differently, but the jury of lay people. We'll definitely see a distinction between those sent home and those that come into the hospital.
0: Well, if you look at that current literature, though, what they're really saying is, and I actually wrote a paper with one of the guys with Johnston from California, and what it really said was, if you come in with a TIA with certain level of symptoms, your chances of stroking out the next period of time are such and such and so and so. We can't put everyone in, but I think that the new mode here is just like we do with chest pain you can get a doppler study of the neck or a ct angio of the neck in the department you can check their heart you can do an EKG hopefully you can get an echo those look okay you've started them on my answer there's probably not a lot you're going to do
3: although it's interesting the american heart association has come out in black and white and said all tia should be admitted you know what that now, is not what's happening in most of the world right right and one of the reasons they've come out with that is because most people cannot get this workup done in a timely manner it would be the unusual department you have to come in at eight o'clock in the morning and we'll get all this done but that's the only case
2: right I think that's good medicine to do it and I also think it's good risk management to do it because we find that once the patient's admitted for their workup it's someone else's responsibility we're not trying to abdicate our responsibility but we've done all that we can
0: what do you think about the repeat TIA now we've got grandpa who was in a week ago had all the studies done He's now on aspirin, and maybe they give him an occasional Plavax, too, or something like that. Comes in, had 15 minutes of a little tingling in the hand, and now he
2: looks fine. What are you going to do with that case? What we do is I've exempted them from the policy. If you have chronic symptoms that have already had a full workup, and I tell you, when I looked at the literature, Greg, on this, there's no standard workup for TIA. That's why I went ahead and made the default for us admission. Someone else then decided what the full workup was, but everyone will clearly understand there was an effort to do a full workup. An outpatient workup can be interpreted many different ways over different time periods, and that's very risky in my opinion. See, this
0: is a time bomb waiting to happen because if you look at the data, if you have a full-blown TIA, no matter what we do, If you don't have a surgically correctable cause or you're an atrial fib, something like that, your chances of going on to stroke in the next two years are somewhere between 60 and 70%. And I mean, we can open their mouth and throw in some aspirin and things like that, but it's a disease entity with a disaster waiting to happen.
2: What prompted me on this as well was that JAMA 2000 article that talked about the number of patients, actually from EDs, go home with a diagnosis of TIA. We're not disputing whether they had TIA or not. They did and they came back, 50% of them within 90 days had their stroke.
0: That was Johnston's article okay. from Northern California that I think they were with the Kaiser system. Right. I think Johnston's with the Kaiser system. And he's the one who finally asked the question, what happens to these folks we send out? And he asked the right question.
2: And 10.5% were back in 48 hours, and that's what concerned us the most. Right. So You'll be the t- last person to touch them when they come back with their stroke. Right.
3: Those are two of them. Remember any others?
2: Yep. Unusual headache.
3: Unusual headache. Okay. You come in with a
2: headache that's out of character for some way, shape, or form from other headaches you've ever had or never had a headache before. Don't try and bait the patient. Are you sure this is the worst headache? Are you sure you haven't had one? What you need is a plain CT and you need an LP. Right. And that's the end of the story there. And if you're not going to do one or the other, you need to call our physician on call and explain why not.
3: You have one doctor on call for the entire. We rotate it. How about number
2: four? We have testicular pain. We know that there are a lot of physicians out there that still, despite what the literature says, feel that they can clinically differentiate epididymitis from testicular torsion. The literature says you can't do it.
0: What we came up with, because we had the same problem. In fact, we even had one guy who at <laughs> one time diagnosed an 18-month-old with epididymitis. In all fair, it was a sexually active 18-month-old, I guess. But I think that what you really have to do is what we said is this. Everybody who's got a pain in the testicle, you have to call the urologist on call and just discuss the case. Mm -hmm. And there should be no deviation from that policy. After all, we don't see that many. We have to call in urologists so infrequently these days. I mean, with the new catheters, we never have to call them in to put catheters anymore. What they have to do is they have to sign off on the deal.
2: What's amazing to me is nobody intends to send somebody home with a testicular torsion. So I can almost tell you with 100% certainty, probably three-quarters of the time when they do have a torsion and they're sent home, what is the diagnosis on the chart? It's epididymitis. There aren't too many alternatives. So if you're sending somebody home with a diagnosis of epididymitis, you've not called the urologist, or you've not done an ultrasound or equivalent study, then we need to have a second person listen to the presentation.
0: We can debate the literature on ultrasounds versus scans versus this, that, and other thing. It's always very interesting to me that depending on the time of the day the urologist wants a different study somehow if it's eight o'clock in the morning and they're in the house anyway they'll be down to take a look they don't need anything if it's near midnight well why don't you get this one and when that's negative why don't you get that one no bottom line is painful testicle in a 12 year old their own literature says the tests aren't perfect and if you wait it's castration by
2: procrastination oh that's great Yeah, the best test is surgical exploration, absolutely, and that's the safest way to go.
3: So you have five or six of these. Actually, I'm surprised that the number is as small as it is. Is it a kind of like an growing endeavor? It is, is a is it?
2: slowly growing endeavor, and the problem is, the difficult thing is, it's finding one or maybe two specific leverage points where you can actually really hang the issue on, where you can say, this is where the error is made. It focuses on this one issue, this one decision to be made.
0: And coming up with consensus. Right. If you put ten doctors in a room, you may get ten opinions. And that's the difference between medicine and law. You put one lawyer in a room, you get as many opinions
3: as you've paid for. Exactly. (laughs) Well, let me ask you a hard one. Have you taken on chest pain?
2: No, not yet. We've talked about it. And actually, the entity that I looked at that was concerning to me is, for whatever reason, we have a higher incidence of sending older people home with potential ischemic chest pain. I'm surprised by that. Well, we should have a higher index of suspicion with them. I suppose you can make an argument that from a risk standpoint, purely risk and not medical care standpoint, there's less liability in that age group. But right. still, we should provide better medical care. We haven't found the right leverage point. Still in the back of my mind, if you're over 70 and you have chest pain, if you're not admitted, you need to make a phone call. We say the same thing about belly pain. Yeah.
0: What about the issue, though, of he's 45, he's had a little chest pain, it's gone away. Do you stop them from getting one set of enzymes and one EKG and deciding that's enough?
2: Yeah, this isn't one of our policies, but certainly education is helpful, too. It's proactive, but it's not real time. We spend a lot of time educating our docs. You can get one troponin, two troponin, ten troponins, and that's fine. I'll probably give you that you've ruled out effectively an MI but you have not ruled out the entire continuum and spectrum of acute coronary syndrome. So you could be sending unstable angina patients home because you feel confidence in a couple sets of enzymes has ruled out the entity, and it has not. And I could almost say the same for myocardial perfusion imaging as well. Those tests, they should be performed when you're having pain. It's unconscionable to send a patient over to nuclear medicine to get this study done when you haven't treated their pain yet. And they're not great tests for the acute phase of this disease process in ruling out unstable angina. For MI, they're not bad tests, but for unstable angina, not very good tests.
0: We'd like to think that we have the test of choice. We probably don't. There is no test which is perfect. But clearly, the public expects us to do a little more with that person, that 45-year-old person who's overweight, has a little bit of hypertension, smokes, whose father died at 52 with an MI. They don't want to just see one EKG
3: and a decision that they have esophageal spasm. Your doctors basically also, do they need to take your risk management course they do. for some period of time? They do. Our
2: high risk emergency medicine course offered three times a year and every new physician in our group has to take it within the first year of employment, including our mid-level providers that we have. Those after,
0: guys they really like, they send to my risk management course, but that's okay.
2: There you go. There yeah. you go. Well, a little different focus. I mean, we respect yours. It's a great course. and really focuses on, if I recall correctly, the communication aspects and patient satisfaction aspects. We do talk about that but what we use that's really unique for us are several things one of them really is using closed claims history that we have from our risk retention group and saying you know this is really what happened this is how the claim played out
0: i don't think there's any better thing you can do with a group than to sit down with the closed claims and just say what do you think of this 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 and just go through them and say this is why it happened So do you want to be the next guy who's sitting here with a summons and complaint
3: in your mailbox? Henry's law is nothing good comes registered mail. So let me get this straight. We have these five or six clinical guidelines that have black and white kind of issues in them. You send them to the risk management course within the first year. What about things like, I think I heard you don't let any of your new doctors work at nights alone. Is that something that you've done recently
2: or is that? No, we do encourage double coverage in the first few months, but we do not have any policy that this allows them from work at nights. And you've shortened your shift lengths? Absolutely. Several years ago. We definitely went away from all 12 hour shifts. We do allow them occasionally in the fast tracks, those sort of things, but in the higher risk areas in the EDs, eight hour shifts. That's the way to go.
0: That's not just a risk management technique, that's a longevity technique in medicine. Because you know what? At a certain age, I can be the nicest guy in the world for the first couple hours of the shift. By the first 15 minutes. The first 15 minutes. (laughs) By the 10th hour the response is, yeah, what do you want? It's a different
3: approach to the patient. So let's focus a little bit more on things that you've done as a policy issue. It doesn't relate to specifically to the doctor care. I mean, everybody knows about checking for the lab discrepancies and the cultures and those kinds of things. Anything else that you've got up your sleeve?
2: Well, a few things, and one I think that's very unique, although many people are approaching it, I think we're approaching it in a very unique way our x-ray discrepancies or radiology discrepancies. We tried for greater than five years to fix this, and again, with our own claims history, here's another claim, and another claim. Good example. I mean, this is one that sticks in my mind. patient had an anterior shoulder dislocation. doc did the best she could to go ahead and reduce the shoulder, thought it was in, sent the patient over for post-reduction films, looked at the films, and based on the clinical assessment and the films, thought it was really in place. Went ahead and sent the patient home and was supposed to follow up with orthopedics and otherwise was given appropriate care. The radiologist looked at the films and said, there's no way the doc couldn't have seen that this wasn't back in place. It certainly doesn't require my notification. So the emergency physician was not notified of this discrepancy. The patient did show up at the orthopedist's office somewhere in the neighborhood of five days later with a brachial plexus injury, and there was a claim. And there was only one answer. Let's figure out a settlement. You deserve to be paid something for your trouble and for the injury. We don't need to litigate this. And so what we found is, even though we had fairly good and watertight discrepancy systems. We needed an airtight system to the point where it held our radiology colleagues accountable. We needed to know that they actually read every study and every study was accounted for and so we've implemented this at every site that we have that every day not only do we just look at the x-ray discrepancies that radiology has decided to provide us by convenience, we run that against a list of every emergency department preliminary reading that's been done by our docs and make sure there's a reading And there's also a record of whether the radiologist called this a discrepancy or not.
0: And a reconciliation. Whenever there's a discrepancy, there's a reconciliation. Who does this work? It sounds like it's kind of...
2: We have a paid quality director at every single one of our sites, and it really is helpful to do this. And we found it very useful. The directors were busy, busy doing schedules and other types of things that were very worthy, and they couldn't focus on quality.
3: Is this quality director a physician?
2: Yes, one of our physicians. We didn't feel it's appropriate to really delegate at such an important physician level responsibility to anyone else. They may have assistance from a quality assurance nurse or someone else, but the physician is in charge of this process. Any others that you can suggest? Yeah, a couple things that I can tell you about, too, that fall under really our risk retention group. And Chief Operating Officer there, Bob Broida, has come up with some ideas of even providing rebates. How many insurance companies, if you have the right policies in place and do the right things, are willing to give you money back from your malpractice premiums?
0: Actually, this is a growing trend because medicine is the only area, and having been the president now of two insurance companies, you get to watch what other companies do. For example, a fire insurance company, if they're insuring, let's say, a lumber yard, they send somebody there to make sure that the kerosene isn't stored next to the plywood. In fact, they can do unannounced visits, go right down their checklist. If you violated the way you're supposed to do business, they can cancel the insurance on the spot. We're the only people who've just said, doctor, do what you want, not our
2: problem. I mean, who would do that? You might as well have rules to the game. Right. We don't penalize them, which is interesting, too. We outline every year at the beginning of the year the five, six, eight, or nine things, whatever it is that we decide are really important to us that we've noticed trends within the past that are problems. And if you accomplish these things in certain categories, we'll give you a certain percentage of the premium back. So if you can't do it for some reason, it's not your fault. That's fine. But if you get it done, every month we're giving you a rebate check. Any other policies that you want to tell us about? Well, I mean, some of those policies are very simple, and they're very evidence-based. For instance, I've noted that we do have problems with EKG interpretation. When I've looked at those individual cases, I have rarely found a trend where the physician has an interpretation problem. So I've really equated that to the multiple parallel processes we have going on in the ED at once, and the physician's getting interrupted during that critical skill. So what we make sure our docs do, we have a policy in place, and they get a rebate for this, that you order a second EKG. Now, when you order the second EKG, maybe you'll see an evolution and change, but more importantly, maybe you'll also go back and look at the first one again. also have a policy as well that we want you to look at the old EKG or document in the medical record that there wasn't one available. There's great value in that clinically. There's great value in that from a risk management standpoint.
0: I'm going to run one of them by you and see what you think. I know a group that now has a checkbox at the end that the nurses must check, and if they can't check, patient improved and ambulatory. If they cannot check that box, the patient has to be re-seen by the doctor. I think that's an interesting concept. Have you tried anything like that from a nursing standpoint? For example, let's say the original blood pressure is 160 over 100. They have no history of hypertension. Do you have a rule that they
2: must repeat a vital sign? Where is this? This upcoming year, it's going to be one of our rebate items that abnormal vital signs must be repeated. The issue is we're finding, and oftentimes after the fact, when doctors are getting busy, they're dictating their charts after the shift, you realize there's never been a repeat vital sign. And the other issue is, too, I like the checkbox, Greg, that you mentioned, and ambulation is a great test, but we still have the old problem of doctor notified. The nurse reports in her chart, doctor notified, doctor aware. If they really aren't making the doctor aware and aren't notifying us, checking the checkbox makes it that much worse.
0: You know, one place I know said nurse cannot write a negative nursing note after the patient has been discharged.
2: That's a great plan. If
0: you're going to say something rude, give me a chance to fix it now and don't have it sitting there as a loose cannon on the deck. In the nursing notes, I actually was asked to look at a case for defense in which the nursing note, the last nursing note, was patient now can't move left arm helped into car. That was the note. She might as well have put a gun in her mouth and blown her head off because to send that to court is a disaster.
2: We had one of those cases. It was one of those TIA cases I was mentioning to you guys. It was a young lady who had, I think, a 7-year-old son, had some TIA symptoms, was discharged, ended up having later a brainstem infarct. Nothing would have been changed by admitting this lady. You can't do anything with a brainstem infarct. But the interesting thing is we even considered defending this. The doc otherwise did a very good job. Documentation was excellent. Everything was really in line for a good defense for this case until we got a hold of the nurse's deposition from the traveler's nurse. And when the patient was gonna be discharged, the first thing that they said was, well, you know, if you can't open both eyes, I really can't discharge you. So the patient reached over with the arm that was working better and and opened the other eye. And they said, well, you can't sign your own discharge, so the friend signed it. Well, since you've opened both eyes and since you've signed the discharge and it's all ready to go, I'll help you to your car.
0: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's It's unbelievable. unbelievable. Kevin, we want to thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts with us. It's going to be guys like you who are going to lead us into the next century of doing risk management. And Rick and I would both like to take this opportunity to thank you for what you've done. thank thank you of you, Kevin. Thank you both.
1: On the same theme of big groups being involved in their own risk management, uh, let's have another interview. John Lyman, who's the chief
3: clinical officer of Premier Health Services in Dayton. And John, you've been doing this for quite a while. Over 25 years. And are you self-insured or something to that effect? Or
4: We have our own captive. Yeah. We formed a captive a little over five years ago. Now, do you use the captive
0: for both primary and secondary layers? Do you take the captive and do you then reinsure on top of that? How do you people actually do it? Exactly the second thing you said. We have the captive and then we reinsure. So you have real skin in the game. We should So, you do. see, that yeah. really helps when you're dealing with a group to be able to say to guys,
3: you know what? It's our money. Most of us are only on one side of this equation. We pay a premium to an insurance company, and we don't want to get sued. But groups like John's, basically, you've got two feet in this. You don't want to get sued because you're the insurance company as well as the doctor involved. Well, I do that Double as well. Double jeopardy
4: right. And our physicians understand that, too. Yes. No, don't say skin in the game. Yeah. Know. Well, the problem with a rental model
0: is it's just like with a car. It's a rental. Then nobody <laughs> cares. When
3: it's your car, people actually care what happens. Although there is some difference in that. When you're sued, there's a lot of angst that goes into this. There's a kind of a personal attack. You have trouble sleeping. It's not just the money. It's the honor. And you've talked in the past about this is not about honor, but the fact of the matter is is that most of us view this as a very personal attack on us, and so we are motivated to not get sued, and that's kind of the thrust of what we're trying to do here. But I'm personally interested in what people have thought out to do as a system across the board. This is what we'd like our doctors to do or not to do to limit their risk. A number of different issues that we look at, and certainly one
4: is documentation. We focus on documentation. We stress the importance of putting down what you've done. If we have to look at it retrospectively, what have you done? And then we feed that information back to the physician. So almost on a real-time basis, we give that information back to the physicians about how they're doing in terms of documentation.
0: Do you do that through the billing mechanism? Somebody has to read that chart to bill it. So do you also make
4: comments back that say, if you'd done X, Y, and Z, it would be a better chart? We do do that, but that's a different component of Premier that does that. The risk management component is separate from the billing component. Oh, really? Right. Yeah, we run two separate audits for the...
3: How do you determine the charts to pick for your risk management-related audits? We have focused
4: in the past few years on the high-risk entities that enter the emergency department. We don't do a carte blanche, and so we parcel out. You all would figure out the ones we do that we look specifically. We call charts from the physicians and review those. So if I was to make a little list here, do you look at deaths within 24 hours of coming
0: to the emergency department, return visits, double return visits?
4: I mean, how do you make this list? Individual hospitals will do that separately. Every hospital, we look at return visits. Some are 48, some are 72 hours. Certainly every hospital with a death within 24 hours, we will look back on that chart, as will the hospital the left without being seen, or the elopement charts. Is that high risk, in your opinion? Well, I think without that question, we consider that high risk. There's a benchmark, and I understand, as the whole group understands, there are going to be people that leave. The benchmark, when we get over that, we look very carefully at that, is why is it overcrowding, is there are the other issues that would cause people to pick up and leave the department. We also try to separate out ones that leave before they've even registered or before they've gotten in the back versus the ones that have gotten in the back been seen by a physician and for whatever reason decide they're going to leave.
0: Yeah, we consider those elopements. Those are not left without being seen Correct. because nobody leaves without being seen except the invisible man. Everybody's been seen by somebody. It's the elopement where you walk in and all of a sudden there's a gown now sitting on that bed (laughs) and where did they go? And we've tried to work through a system if that happens You got to make some phone calls. You got to look in the department. You got to have security kind of check the parking lot because you don't know
4: where they've gone. We consider those extremely high risk. The assumption would be, well, geez, if they're able to get up and walk out of here, they couldn't have been too sick. Obviously, that's, I shouldn't say obviously, but that's an erroneous assumption. We need to follow each one of those and make sure that we've not overlooked something oftentimes it just follow up what you said Greg we often find out about that they've gone the room that has the empty gown and then we found out one of the patient care technicians say oh yeah I saw mrs. Jones walking down the hall a little while ago and she just walked out I watched her stumble down the hall that's right in
0: terrible pain and we did nothing about it (laughs) Let me ask again about this documentation. If we had to tell a physician to do one thing, we've gone to this, if you're going to have a conversation with an outside doc or an outside hospital or something, you got to date it, time it, tell us who you spoke to so that we got some proof there that we've started the search to get this person the care they
4: need. What are you doing with it? Oh, interesting you say that. We tend to think of documentation as the interaction with the patient and to make sure that what the patient said and our examination is all on the chart. We stress that. I think you're bringing up a slightly different point. Events that occur during the emergency department visit, somewhat unrelated to the patient, the consult and the other discussions that may occur very much a part of the record of the patient. And we stress the importance
3: of including that kind of information on the chart. We uh, talked earlier today on the convention floor about this idea of pass-ons and what would be kind of the, if you had your druthers, what would be the ideal pass-on for an organizational adoption of this is what we want you to do kind of thing.
4: Just developing is our best practice for this coming year is to make sure that those turnovers, those relations of the patients from one position to another take place in a not necessarily formalized, but a manner that makes sense and is done consistently. And what we are pushing, the turnover be at the bedside. I'm a strong believer in the bedside turnover versus the nursing station turnover or the passing in the hall turnover. So many positive aspects come out of that at the bedside. And just out of courtesy to introduce the new doctor to the patient that they are saying, I'm leaving now, I'm turning your care over to Dr. Picotta, and Dr. Picotta, this is what I have have seen and this is what we're waiting for, and I'd like to say routinely, you know, to talk about cases with our colleagues, if it's a double coverage
3: setting. So the idea here is, number one, to try to get your colleagues to go into the room together introduce the new oncoming doctor, discuss in front of the patient what the anticipations are in terms of what we're waiting for, those kinds of things. And the Joint Commission has really gotten into this pass-on business. They view it as a high-risk area. But as John said, I think that it is a great idea, not only from the risk management point of view, but from a kind of human relations kind of point of view. I've seen these situations where... The doctor goes home, the new doctor shows up, and they go into the room and say, Dr. So-and-so off-duty now, I'm your new doctor kind of thing. And I thought, geez, you've got to be able to do that in a better manner than this. I mean, it shows that the first doctor didn't even have the time to come in and say, I'm going off, or I'm going to introduce you to the doctor who's going to be taking over your care. So that's one thing, and that's a new endeavor on the part of your group. And we've talked to our doctors about the same thing. You don't want to get into saying, well, I don't have time to do that. It can't take all that much time. You know, what are you talking about, a couple of minutes? it's a patient. Any other more specific kinds of things that you're asking your doctors to do? Interesting,
4: Rick, you touched on maybe the backbone of our risk management program, a lot of different facets of it, but it's a customer service component. We see customer service incredibly important for a variety of different reasons, but certainly from a risk management standpoint. That's... Part and parcel of what we do, and we cannot stress that enough. And Greg, having heard your customer service talks many times, we feel that from a risk management standpoint, courtesy standpoint, no question, from a risk management standpoint, both from able to get more information from the patient, otherwise, customer service is such a crucial part of our risk
3: management. John, you mentioned that you selectively pull charts for review that are considered to be potentially high risk. Are they reviewed by a physician? correct. And are there any more hard and fast, well, this is a chest pain chart. What are our expectations in a chest pain chart? Do you have something that they go on, or is it just one doctor's kind of view of the world? No, we have a template that these charts are checked against. I need to correct
4: myself just a little. When you say reviewed by a physician, we also have uh, mid-level providers. We have a team, but they're clinicians, either mid-level providers or physicians, and they are working through the template, looking for specific items on each chart. I think that what you're seeing now
0: is a lot of the groups will take a topic audit that month. This month, we're looking at children with fever under one year of age. You're looking at your compliance against a known template. And if you're at the 95% level, maybe you got to talk to one guy about some care. But you don't beat that one to death. Next month, it's a different topic.
3: Well, that brings up another issue. How do your physicians learn your expectations with regards to all of the various things that you're auditing? Do they kind of get something in advance that say, here's our expectations in chest pain patients or or belly pain patients so that they know what you're looking for? Exactly. Every physician has that
4: template that I just referred to, so they know exactly what we're looking for with the individual
3: with vigil audits. That way you're not playing the what am I thinking game kind of thing. They know the rules and you're basically just determining whether they followed the rules. Exactly.
4: This certainly speaks again to documentation. They may have done everything they were supposed to do, but if it's not documented, we don't know that. So when we do the template and that's one of the feedback behaviors that we give to the physician.
1: Look, that's all we had time for with John Lyman, Uh, but uh, there's some more of this about another five or 10 minutes, which we'll have on next month on Risk Management Monthly. Thanks to John Lyman and Greg and uh, Rick for putting that together. I thought it was really helpful, really instructional about what these big groups are doing in order to reduce risk across a broad number of physicians.
0: I'm getting more and more hassling from people about wine of the month. They don't care what we say, (laughs) but but if they can't get the wine, they're unhappy. So let me give you two wines this time that I know you can get. (laughs) BevMo? No, this is California, some of California's best. Again, I have to compliment the wine advocate and Robert Parker. He put out an issue which is spectacular, which is basically the world's greatest wines for under $25 a bottle. Mm -hmm. And these are serious collectors who read this thing, and the guys who write these reviews are terrific. Let me give you two of them. Californians, so you don't have to pay the high price of the euro, and one of those is called Wyatt, as is in Wyatt Earp. He says the 2006 Cabernet Sauvignon, it's California wine, they gave it a 90, stuff's 13 bucks a bottle. It was rated up. With some of the better California wines, which are 100 bucks a bottle, 13 bucks. this is a bargain. Ladies and gentlemen, if you had no other reason to subscribe <laughs> to Risk Management Monthly, you've got it now, 13 bucks a bottle. And it's Wyatt? Wyatt. That's at my local Ralph's. I see that brand all the time. Well, and here's another one. Here's another one that you'd like to pick up, which is Round Hill. Round Hill Chardonnay, a great rating. And this stuff is selling for six bucks a bottle. A white wine. Now you're talking, now you're at my level. <laughs> right there. Saying, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> Six <laughs> bucks and it doesn't taste like bum.
0: You realize Mad Dog 2020 <laughs> costs that much. Well. I, uh, Boone's Farm Apple is that much, and we can get a decent wine, Round Hill, California, 2006 Chardonnay, six bucks a bottle. You know what, men? We need to call this show off and go get us some $6 wine. (laughs) All right, right, that's it. Great issue. See you guys. Bye.